morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. All right, uh, are we ready? We're uh, in this series called Meals with Jesus. Today we're going to look at a very specific kind of meal. Um, let's, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to go to uh, primarily one place, but I want to whet our appetite, first of all, in Psalm 23, and then you can go over to Luke 15. I mean, come on, we could uh, probably say this uh, from our hearts. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and the staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And then also let's go to Luke 15. These are two very... Uh, common parts of our Bible. Luke 15 is where Jesus is talking about what it means to be lost and found. You have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, and it culminates uh, with what we call the parable of the lost son. Sometimes it's lost sons because you see that both of the sons are lost. And it goes this way, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set out for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. Uh, that's, that's what prodigal means. That's why it's called the prodigal. Prodigal means to squander. It means to waste. After he had wasted everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Now we know not just what he did, but where he went. This is a Jewish son indulging himself in a Gentile world. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him literally means in the, in the Greek, he, he, he put his head on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, 
Bring, him, bring the fattened calf. Let's kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine who is dead is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. This is God's word for today. You can be seated. Okay, so I, I hope we're starting to see now that meals in the ancient world are, are about more than just good food and in, enjoying things that taste delicious. Meals in the ancient world always symbolize relationship. The desire for relationship. Relationship that's done at a deep level and, and, and not just the kind of relationship that's here today and gone tomorrow, but, but meal symbolizes this eternal bond that we oftentimes use the word covenant. Um, covenants are always accompanied with, with a meal to, to symbolize this undying loyalty that, that we have in this relationship. So today I want to introduce you to a specific kind of meal. In fact, this meal is still practiced in the Arab world today. Um, and it's a meal that has massive purpose attached to it. It's called a sulha. Anybody heard of a sulha before? Ooh, I like this. Okay. Um, sulha, uh, let me just give you a definition of it. Um, Suha is the Arabic pronunciation of the Hebrew word sholkan. Sholkan means table. And, and this kind of table fellowship dates itself all the way back to Abraham and, and, and probably before that. And it's, it's, it's what is there. It's, it's a meal that two parties sit down for the purpose of reconciliation uh, where relationship is broken, we eat this meal to restore that relationship. And, and, and so the, the, the way that this would work, um, either the offended party or the offender could initiate this meal. And not only was the food and drink placed on the table, but all the hurts, all the wrongs, all the uh, offenses, the injustices... And, and then there would be a time for apologies, for sincere apologies to be made. Um, sometimes reconciliation prices uh, would be negotiated. For instance, let's just kind of put this real practically in our world. Let's just say, I need a car. I, I asked if I could borrow your car. Um, you said yes, and I went out and I smashed it. Um, <laughs> I don't know how mad or, or not you would be, but then let's say... I set up this meal, and everything would be laid on the table. I would say my apologies. You might also negotiate some things uh, to make it right, or you might just totally uh, wipe the slate clean. And the moment then that you picked up something from that table, whether to eat or drink, and brought it to your lips at that moment... It was over. Complete forgiveness. Complete reconciliation. No one brings this up ever again. And, and again, this, this, this kind of meal could be, be between two people. It could be between two whole families that are in conflict. 
It could be between two whole clans. And, and, and if it involves more than two people, um, then all of a sudden everybody just starts eating because a shared table, a shared meal, means we are now back doing a shared life at the deepest level. It's a powerful picture. In fact, uh, Lois Tverberg gives a recent example of this because sometimes these kind of meals will make it to the newspaper. Um, and and one, one such one that made it to the newspaper um, was one of a Jewish man uh, in Jerusalem who was driving late at night in an Arab village, and this boy just darted in front of his car. He had no time uh, to slam on the brakes. He hit the boy, and the boy was pronounced dead um, at the scene. This haunted this Jewish man, so he, of all things, called up an Arab pastor, an Arab Christian, and said, would you arrange a suha uh, with, with, with this family, with this father? And, and the pastor said, you know what, you, you really just don't want to do that. Um, there's a lot of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, and, and I, he, but he just like, I have to. And, and so it, it was set up. And he went to the meal. And, 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 and this is uh, what this man writes um, about it afterward. He said the tension in, in, in the dad's face had cast a shadow on the proceedings. Until we sat down, I gave all of my sincere apologies that I could give. And he said, he looked me squarely in the eyes, and he smiled as big as he could. He moved towards me, opening his arms with a gesture of, let's embrace and we met, we embraced. He kissed me ceremonially three times on the cheek, and then everybody began to embrace. And it didn't, it didn't end with that. Later in the night, the dad through a translator said this, know, oh my brother, that you now are in the place of my son, who has died. I know you have a family, but you now have a second family with us. That's powerful. That changes the world. And that's a soha. I see soha all over the Bible. Um, I see it in Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban. If you remember the story, um, Laban is not only Jacob's boss, but he's uh, Jacob's business partner, partner, and even more, he's Jacob's father-in-law. And, and after years and years of hurting each other, finally Jacob just taps out of that whole thing and leaves. But Laban hunts him down, and they, they form a bond together, a covenant of eternal friendship with each other, where all the families come together for a suha, a meal. Psalm 23, you prepare a table. The word there in Hebrew is shokan, from which the word suha comes from. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
And, and, and from our Western point of view, uh, we think that David is celebrating the fact that God is preparing this table before him as, as God's protection while his enemies watch. And this could very well be true because we know that God protects David and, and, and God protects us. But a Middle Eastern view of this story is that God is preparing a sulha where David sits down with his enemies, where they break bread together and are reconciled. This is why they say, surely goodness and mercy followed David all the days of his life, is because he offered goodness and mercy to his enemies. John 21 is another place where, where, where I see a sulha. Why, why is Jesus preparing this meal on the beach? It's because he wants to restore fellowship and relationship with Peter. Peter, you've betrayed me three times. Do you love me? Do you like me? Are we friends? Yes, Lord, you know how much I love you. I love you too, Peter. Feed my sheep. Now, my favorite soha in the whole Bible is the one we read in Luke 15. I mean, this story... This parable that Jesus tells is Jesus really retelling the whole biblical story. And it's so awesome. Especially when you get into uh, why Jesus is, is telling this story, which is why I want to linger uh, in this parable uh, for a little bit this morning. Um, Jesus has critics, <laughs> all kinds of critics. That's not surprising. Until you look at who his critics are. Turn to Luke 15. Tells us why Jesus told this story in the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or the scribes, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the people then that are, that are complaining here, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, would be the equivalent of saying today, the ministers and those Bible-believing, church-attending folk, those people that take God seriously, who pray all the time, who lift their hands in worship, who give to the poor, who talk all the time about being spirit-filled, those people. And what are they complaining about? By the way, do you complain a lot about other people? They're complaining about the people, the kind of people Jesus associates with. And who are they? Well, the, the text says, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, this is not the poor and the needy. This is not Jesus doing social justice. He does that, but that's not here. Tax collectors are a political group in Jesus' day. It would be like Jesus eating with Rush Limbaugh or the NRA or Planned Parenthood or the Clintons or CNN hosts. Or Donald Trump. <laughs> Can't believe I said it. 
The sinners are a grouping of people based on, on lifestyle. Be like Jesus hanging out with pot smokers, pimps, prostitutes, gangbangers, drug lords, Wall Street big shots, billionaire country club types. Do you know that Jesus is regularly and publicly hanging out with these kind of people? I mean, right now, in your mind, imagine the worst kind of person. Because Jesus is hanging out with that person. Not just hanging out, baby. They're eating and drinking. Feasting. Having a blast. See, and this is why Jesus has to explain to them not just why he associates with them, but even more than that, why he eats and drinks with them. And that's why he tells this parable. Now, what I've noticed is so often we make this parable about the lost son or the lost sons, because in, in, in essence, they're both lost. And, 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 and we look at, okay, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, what they should be, what they shouldn't be. And then from that, we start to put our own shoes in their shoes, and we start applying that to ourselves, what we should be and, and shouldn't be, should do, and shouldn't, shouldn't do. And in, in essence, we make this all about ourselves, but this really is a story, first and foremost, about a father. I mean, I just wish the title of this parable would be the story of the rejected father. Because it's here to teach us the kind of father that you and I belong. I mean, just consider this father. When, when his son says to him, Father, give me. <laughs> give me what is rightfully mine. Give me what I deserve. Yeah, we can see what that kid is about a thousand miles away, that he's riddled with entitlement, that he's obsessed with himself, that he's someone who probably doesn't quite yet get it, and that he's probably lost before he becomes lost. But let's get in the shoes of the dad a little bit, because he's a person too. I tell this all the time as, as a father to my own kids, like, hey, I hope you guys know, like, I have feelings here. Like, I, I, I'm a part of this equation. Um, but Ken Bailey, who is the foremost uh, scholar on this story, someone who's lived in the Middle Eastern context for 20 years of his life and knows all the ins and outs of it, um, says that in this context, no son would ever, ever, ever ask such a question. First of all, because in that world, everything is ordered around the father. Your meaning, your worth, your significance, your joy, your, your sense of belonging. It was all derived from your father, from your place in your father's house. He also tells us that that inheritance would never be distributed um, to the sons until after his death. And for any son to ask for the inheritance before their dad died would be like saying to him, Dad, I wish you were dead. Look how this father responds. Because Ken Bailey says, even if that question was asked, 
you would see a father take his hand and give that kid an old-fashioned beating behind the woodshed. Verse 12, the father divided his wealth. In fact, in the, in the Greek there, it's his bios, his, from which we get biography. Uh, bios is life. This isn't just his material possessions, but this is the fruit of his life. And it's torn apart. It's split in two. In fact, if we happened to be in Jesus' audience that day, when Jesus got to this part of the story, there would have been just this loud gasp from the audience. Because they just, what? This father did what? And the son took his, his, his father's life and it says he just wasted it away. In this wild living. And we need to see how, how, how deep his lostness is. It, it's not just that he's having sex with prostitutes or that he's living this wild lifestyle or that he's this narcissistic, entitled dude. But you need to even go deeper than that. Why is he doing this? Why are some of you right now living a reckless life? Um, it's because the son is seeking more than just wealth and, and indulgence. He wants control of his life. He's saying to his dad, he's saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Get the heck out of my life so I can live the, li the life that I want to live. Now, John Paul Sartre, the famous uh, French existential philosopher, was once asked a question, why do you not believe in God? Because he was always propagating uh, his agnosticism. His answer to that question, so profound, not what you might think. He did not say because God is irrational, because God is unreasonable, because God is unbelievable. He said the reason I don't believe in God is because I don't want to have someone tell me how to live. This is why people reject God. It's not because God is, is, is irrational. It's, it's so that they can be in control of their life. And, and there are huge consequences for this. As Jesus flushes out in this story, verses 13 and 14, yes, he indulges in what is called wild living. It literally means to be out of control. And this is what happens when we seek to be in control of our lives. It brings us to an out-of-control state. Verse 14, his life starts to crumble. He eventually loses everything. Verse 16, he gets to this place where he is experiencing profound emptiness, longing. If you want to know now what Jesus is teaching uh, in terms of what it means to be lost, this is what it means to be lost. It's to lose home. It's to be outside the arms of the Father. That's what it means to be lost. It's as we said last week, you and I, we have been made for God. We have been made for home. And, and, and being in the Father's arms, in the Father's house, under our Father's care, in relationship with our Heavenly Father, is what home is. 
Henry Nouwen says, home is at the center of my being where I hear God say, I am your father and you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My heart longs for that. Every heart longs for that. And here's the prodigal. He's leaving home, trying to find home, and showing us that when we seek home apart from the Father, it's always going to end in some form of famine. Famine. Now, the next part of the story is, is where so many people especially make it all about the Son because verse 17 says, now when he came to his senses, it, it literally reads, when, when he came to himself. Because for the first time, uh, the Son now is realizing what he has lost, that he's lost home, that he's lost his father. Um, and then verses 18 and 19, the prodigal pretty much concocts this whole plan on, on how he can get back home. And a lot of times we'll, we'll call this repentance because repentance, uh, shuvah, or teshuvah in the Hebrew simply means to turn or to return. To return home. But if you notice, his plan is still centered upon himself. It's what he will do. It's on what his efforts will bring about. It's, it's him still being in complete control that if I do this, then my dad has to do this and everything will be good in my life. In fact, even he, in his plan, he, he, he's going to say to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And to us, this sounds really good, except this is an exact word-for-word -word quote on what uh, Pharaoh said to Moses when the plagues are hitting him. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. In other words, the son is being just like Pharaoh. He isn't repenting. He's only saying what he needs to say to get what he wants. That's how I read this. Because Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 will say that there are two ways for a person to be sorrowful. There are two ways for a person to repent. One is actually very selfish. I can be very sorry for my sake. I can be very sorry because of the hurt that it caused me. And I can be sorrowful to the extent then that that, that, that sorrow serves me. Paul says, uh-uh, that's worldly sorrow. That's only another form of selfishness. He says, true repentance is when I'm sorry for the hurt, not that I cause myself, but the hurt that I caused God and the hurt that I caused other people. And the younger son isn't there yet, even though he's returning home. Because it's still all about him. It's all about his plans, his efforts to, to somehow remedy his crappy life. But don't judge him. <laughs> because he's just like us. He doesn't have the capacity to truly repent until he sees off in the distance his father running to him. In his most shameful state, 
sees the father running. To me, this is the most powerful, profound, impactful, most beautiful description of God in the Bible coming from the lips of Jesus to describe who God is. He runs to us when we've made a complete mess of our lives, when we've blown it the very worst, in the very worst way, he runs. Now I noted a few weeks ago that there are only two places in the Bible where an old man runs. Here, and Abraham when he's feeding, showing hospitality to those three strangers. Well, I was wrong, and some of you probably knew that, right? Because there's a third place. If you remember when Jacob is returning home, and he has to meet his brother Esau, who he hasn't seen in years, his brother, who he has deeply wronged, deeply hurt, so much so that he thinks Esau, his brother, is going to kill him, And yet they're about to meet again as these two old men, and as Jacob gets closer, the text describes how he's paralyzed with this fear. But then Jacob looks up and he sees him, and off in the distance is Esau. And this is what the text says, Esau ran, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And these two brothers wept together. And Jacob then says to his brother, seeing you is like seeing the face of God. If you want to know what the face of God looks like, when you and I absolutely deserve to be smashed, he runs to us. He throws his arms around us. He falls on our neck and he kisses us. And here's a a question that you have to always ask when you're reading the text. Keep asking the question, why? (laughs) Why is the father running in this story that Jesus is telling? Well, of course, it's the excitement of my son who is lost is now found But Kenneth Bailey gives us a whole nother piece. He says, in that culture, when a Jew would go off and waste away the family's wealth in the world of Gentiles and had the audacity then to come home, not only would the whole family, but the whole village would gather around this prodigal They would present the prodigal with a clay jar filled with the best food from the land. And instead of giving it to the prodigal, they would bring it to him and smash it at his feet to say, this is what you have done with your life. This is what you have done to us. You have smashed your relationship with us. You have broken all trust with us. You've smashed the heart of your father. 
this ceremony is called the Kazaza ceremony, which means to be cut off because it was a ceremony to say to that son, you are no longer welcome here. Now listen, this son, when he's off, he doesn't want to return to this, but he's starving to death. Now, why did this father run? Because he's thinking, I don't want that for my son. I don't want for him to be cut off. I want him to be reconciled to my home. I want him to be reconciled to my arms. This is my, my son. So if I can somehow get to my son first, that this, this whole village will then have to fall in line and mimic my love and acceptance. This is why the father runs. This is why he brings shame and dishonor to himself. Because in that world, anytime an old man runs, that's what he's doing. It's undignified for an old man to run. He's bringing shame, dishonor, But I don't want him to have kazaza. I want to give him a suha. I want a meal, not just between me and my son, where, where, where he's reconciled back into my home. I want it for the whole village to see how much I love my son. And this father throws the biggest suha ever. If you want to know why Jesus is eating with sinners, he's not just eating and drinking. This is a specific meal. It's sulha. He is reconciling people to the Father. And then, and, 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 and he... he it, it is to create shame to himself. It is bringing dishonor to Jesus. In people's eyes, it is an undignified thing to do. But this is why Jesus came to the world. He came to the world to seek and to save the lost. He came to the world to eat and drink with sinners. The way that he seeks and saves sinners is through suha. This meal of reconciliation. And see, when we see God doing that for us, Which is why Jesus is telling this story, because this is the part of the story where the tax collectors and the prostitutes begin to weep. You mean that God loves me? You mean that God can accept me? It doesn't matter what we've done, where we've been. When we turn back... To this father, he will dishonor himself, he will shame himself, and he will run to us to reconcile us because he loves us. And all this shaming, all this dishonoring really points to the ultimate suha, communion, the Lord's table, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. You talk about 
the dishonoring of the all-honorable one and the shaming of the all-perfect one. He loves us. And this is what causes our heart to repent. We don't repent because we're so good. We repent because he's so good. And until you know that father, until you absolutely know that father running to you, you'll never repent. But this is why for me, and I've been saying this for I think the last two years because I've come to this conclusion, repentance always used to be for me one of those things that I was supposed to do. I knew it was a good thing to do. But now repentance is, from my end is one of the most joy-filled, exciting things I can do is to like, Rod, you blew it. You, you, you've been a prodigal. You've, you've, you've walked away from a God who loves you. You've, you've turned away from home. And to get to that spot and to think I can say it and I can come back to experience the Father running, falling on my neck, embracing me, my son, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Be reconciled to God. He's not offering you a kazaza ceremony. He took that on the cross. He was smashed. He was crushed like that clay pot. He was the one cut off so he could offer us sulha. Come home. Repent. All of life is repentance. We don't just repent one time. All of life is looking at ourselves when we're not home and admitting it and turning back and going home to a father whose arms are like this. This is where we end so many sermons. I got one more thing. Can't end here. We're not taking communion today. <laughs> I'm not going to let you indulge in the, in the ultimate suha. We will take it in the future. I'm instead going to challenge you to do suha with who you need to do suha with. And I know people are coming to your mind. It might be family members. It might be friends. It might be some enemy that, that, that is just out there that you're in conflict with. And I am going to challenge you to do this because I want us to think about the price that, that, that we pay for not doing suha. Like how often do we hold on to a grudge? How often do we nurse a relational uh, wound that just ends up poisoning our souls? I wonder how many of us right now are just stuck in, in a place because of what someone has done to us. See, when we do suha, we are most like Christ. This is why I think Psalm 23 says, you anoint my head with oil. To have your head anointed with oil is the word Mashiach, Messiah. You have Messiah. You have Messiah to me. We are like Christ when we are reconciling ourselves with our enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life as Goodness and mercy follow Christ when we're reconciled to each other. We're reconciled here.
so we can reconcile this way. Let's pray. Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in my Father's house forever. And God, that is because of the mercy and the grace of the ultimate anointed one who came to this world, who prepared a table before us so we could be reconciled to him. God, if there is anyone here today who isn't reconciled to you, God, may the eyes of their heart be open to the kind of God, to the kind of Father you are. And God, may we be a people who aren't just into all the benefits of belonging to your family, but that we would also be into the responsibilities that because we belong to you, because we're your sons and daughters, because we've been reconciled to you, we now bring reconciliation to the world. God, let us take that very seriously. In Jesus' name, amen.